Quiet. The 91 freeway makes my life a living heck. The people that I work with are a pain around my neck. My children won't amount to much cause they won't do their studies. Instead of being with me, they hang out with their buddies. Because I'm pessimistic, I'm as good as it's gonna get. Yes, I'm pessimistic and I have no regret. The people all around me are as crabby as can be. They don't really get the fact it's all about me. I live in California where my taxes make me cry. My house is in foreclosure cause my mortgage is too high. The government tries to cheer me up and says don't pout about it. Things will get gonna get better, but I rather doubt it. Because I'm pessimistic and I'll always be this way. Yes, I'm pessimistic, doesn't matter what you say. I'll be like this cause till the day I die, cause that's what's in this heart. I've turned pessimism into a work of art. All right. Well, today we're going to talk about pessimism. I don't know if you got that. And Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart. Did you get it? Heart? So the mouth speaks. And, and the idea is we're going to be really looking at an issue that's huge to God. Uh, 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 there's, a, there's a chance that you may not realize uh, in this moment. This is, this is an immense subject to God. Uh, it's of a paramount importance to him that we understand that we were never, ever, ever created by God to be pessimistic. And so two weeks we're going to talk about this. Uh, we want to talk about today uh, the death of pessimism, and that means putting an end to complaining. The next week we want to talk about the death of pessimism and how you put an end to negativity. And, and it's so important, I want you to grab hold of that. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Now, while you're turning there, uh, I think we saw the opposite of pessimism this week. Dan Zanoni, who is uh, uh, the father of one of our guys on staff named Ben May, um, Dan had something that just rocked his and his family's world. His appendix began to hurt horribly and then ruptured. He was rushed into emergency, and while they're dealing with that, something else happened that took his situation to a far more serious state. His eyes rolled back, he went into a convulsion, and they lost him. For nearly 30 seconds, he had no heartbeat. As in all, all uh, uh, by the doctor's standards, medical practice, he was dead for at least 30 seconds. They grab the paddles, they're going to work on him, they hit him, he wakes up, and he hears the doctors rushing around, and he's just coming out of it. He hears the machine still making sounds that let him know how urgent it is, and the frantic pace going, and, and he said the most amazing thing was he felt the presence of the Lord. And he actually said to God, he said, God, if, if, Lord, if this is my time, I'm ready. And he had an incredible peace. And then I want you to catch what he prayed. 
He said, but Lord, if there's any way I can stay, because I'm not level four yet. Don't you love that? And uh, I thought that's pretty cool. So by the way, if you're praying that, then you're probably level four. Uh, but, but Dan uh, is okay right now. God has done an incredible work. But, but you know, his heart is so, his heart is so aimed at what God wants. And if you're brand new to us, you're saying, okay, what's level four? So let me clue you in. Uh, level four uh, has to do with getting up there. So level one, a level one person is a person asking questions. They're wondering, is there a God? Or they're wondering, how, with all the religions out there, which one is true? Or they might believe God is God and that Jesus of the Bible is real. But they're asking, okay, what do I do with this? And, and, and do I commit my life to it? So it's an exploring stage where you're asking questions. Then level two is when you enter conversion. You've decided, I'm ready. I'm going to take the leap of faith. I'm going to say yes to him. I'm going to open my heart to him. And, and I'm just saying, God, take me. And God uh, grabs hold of you and adopts you as his child. The Holy Spirit enters you. The blood of Jesus cleanses you from all your sin. And you sense something happening in an incredible way. And, and, and you just enter this relationship with the Lord that's real and vibrant and alive. Then in level three, you begin to connect with the Lord. Uh, we're going to talk on, on especially Sunday nights, but lots this year about how do we deepen that connection with him and have it be real and vibrant and intimate and we're tuned into him. But level four, level four is not about knowledge. It's not like I know enough and I get here. It's not about maturity. It's not like, okay, if I'm Christian long enough, I'll get here. This is for the person who says what Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. This is the person that says no holding back. This is a person who has such a first love for God that they say, I want everything in my life to be his. And, and so when you hit this level and you can do it really quickly and you can drift out of it pretty easy, the bottom line is this is the greatest life you could possibly live. Because when you're living here, you and God are so connected and you're being who God wants you to be and you're living the life he wants you to live. Jesus said this is the life of a disciple and I want to remind you if you weren't here nowhere in the Bible are we told to make Christians we are told to make disciples Jesus said in Matthew 28 go out into all the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to do all that I have commanded you and so when someone becomes a disciple the first thing they do is get baptized into Christ by the way that's how it, the order goes you don't get baptized and then become a disciple you become a disciple and then get baptized and you experience this intimacy with God and then what happens is we want to teach that person to do all all that the Lord has told you to do. And, and you seek to live with an all-out commitment to him. Now in Luke chapter 14, and this is in other messages, Jesus said, if three things are not true of you, you cannot be my disciples. Three times he says, if this isn't true, you cannot be my disciple. Number one, Jesus said, if you do not love me more than anyone else, you cannot be my disciple. Number two, if you don't love me more than self, you cannot be my disciple. And then number three in Luke chapter 14, he says, if you don't love me more than all your possessions, you cannot be my disciple. It's an all-out love for God. And it's a love relationship, an intimate relationship, a vibrant relationship. Then Jesus said there are three proofs of discipleship. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, uh, you're going to know you're a disciple if you continue in my word and you live your life according to my word, and then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free, and everyone will know you're a disciple of mine when you're continuing in the word. 
And then over in John chapter 13, he says this. He says, you know what? People are going to know you're my disciple because you have love for one another. And as you love one another and you're tuned into one another, he says, people are going to know you're my disciple. And then in John chapter 15, he says this. He says, people are going to know you're my disciple because you bear much fruit. There, there's a fruit that comes out of your life. Now, by the way, this fruit also comes out of your mouth. Remember, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It is interesting. While we can never be 100% sure that we know what's in someone's heart, Jesus actually said there are two tests to know what's in your heart. One is to listen to the words you say, and the second is to look where you put your treasure. Because out of the mouth, the heart speaks, and the second is where your treasure is, your heart is also. So when we want to examine where someone's heart is, Jesus gave two outward ways of noticing, which brings us to this. And I want you to grab a hold of how big this is. Now, as we dig into it, I want to tell you my all-time favorite story outside of the Bible. This is a story I actually think about quite often. And the reason is, I think it really sums up what life is all about. Outside of scripture, it's my favorite story. And the story goes about a, a psychologist that was studying optimism and pessimism. Optimism is where you see the good in everything. Pessimism, you see the negative side, the bad in everything. And he was just doing an extreme amount of study and research on this. And he ended up finding a little boy who was eight years old that was the most optimistic little boy he'd ever met in his life. This kid just saw the good in everything. Then he went and found the most pessimistic little boy he'd ever met, who happened to also be eight years old. So this scientist thought, you know what, this is too good to be true. I'm going to put them through a battery of tests to see why one eight-year-old is so amazingly optimistic and positive, and the other one is so amazingly pessimistic and negative. And so they did blood work, and the little optimist is like, cool. <laughs> and he's laughing as they take blood, and the pessimist is crying. They do the ink pot test, and the optimist sees all these good things, and the pessimist, he even gets scared. Uh, they do an MRI, and the optimist say, cool, picture of my, and he's just having a blast. Then they come to the final test. They take the little, little optimistic boy, the boy who only sees good in everything. And they walk him down a long hallway and they open up a door to a room that's about the size of our stage and, and they say, you're going to wait in here for one hour. And when he steps in, this huge area is filled with horse manure. Everywhere you look, fresh horse manure, piled in some places to the ceiling. And they said, okay, stay in here and they lock him inside. Then they go and take the little pessimistic boy. And they take him into a room that size too, but it's filled with toys. There is Xbox, there is PlayStation 3, there is Wii with all the games and all the handles, with big, you know, LCD screens. There, there's all the Cars toys, you know, from the movie Cars, and, and all the other toys that anybody would want, all the superheroes, and even costumes. And they said, play with what you want, and you get to keep three things. And they lock the door. An hour later, they come back and open the door where the little pessimist is. And at first, they can't find him. And then they go around a corner, and he's sitting there, and he's all bunched up, and his lip is sticking out, and tears flowing from his eyes. And, and they said, son, what's wrong? And he said, I don't, I don't want to play with any of these toys. And even if I did, I'd break them, and I'd get in trouble. And he just starts crying. And then they're standing there thinking, maybe it wasn't a good idea we did what we did to that other little eight-year-old. I mean, an hour in a room like that? What if he snaps? Lawsuits galore. They're running down the hallway now. They're fumbling with their keys. And when they get the door open, they look inside. And here this little eight-year-old boy is, wide eyes, big smile on his face, digging his hands in the manure and throwing it in the air. 
digging it in, throw it in the air. And they run over and they go, son, what are you doing? And he says, with all this manure in here, there's got to be a pony somewhere. <laughs> that is literally, I think, a story that sums up life. It really is. You might have the manure, but are you looking for the pony? And you know what I want you to grab hold of? I really believe a level four person is looking for the pony. They believe that God is so big that no problem can stand against him. They believe that God's grace will come and literally make it into a plane. They believe that while we're not going to hide from the fact that it hurts at times, and please don't catch that I'm being insensitive to hurt and to pain and to disappointment and to times you don't know what's going to happen, that we have something bigger than that, and that's our relationship with a God who's adopted us as his children and wants us to live an amazing life. The last thing we should ever be is pessimistic. Why? Because we serve a God who says, I will cause all things to work together for good if you love me and you live your life according to my purpose. I promise that. And I don't know about you, but I think you're going to say, don't we believe God on that? If we believe him. So then when we do, no matter how big the problem, what does that mean? How big the miracle uh, no matter how devastating the situation, how amazing the love and comfort of God. It is interesting, and get rid of Philippians 2 if you're not there, that Marcus Buckingham said this. Marcus Buckingham is a, a leadership uh, expert, an organizational expert. Uh, 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 he's incredible on, on just the kind of realms of making teams work together. And Marcus Buckingham said this. He said, the opposite of a leader is not a follower. The opposite of a leader is a pessimist. I want you to hear that again because I think he's right. The opposite of a leader is not a follower. The opposite of a leader is a pessimist. Philippians chapter 2, and notice this. Uh, uh, level 4 people do not complain. Level 4 people do not complain. Look what it says in Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Okay, I, I think that, you know, there are verses in the Bible we might have to explain as this one. Isn't this pretty plain? Notice it's not do some things without grumbling or disputing. No, not do most things without. Do you, do you catch the, the, the all-encompassing nature of that phrase? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now notice why. Verse 15, so that, why do we do this? So that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul said, if I walk in and I see you complaining and I see you disputing and arguing, he said that I'm not sure that anything I did with you had any merit at all. I'm not sure it's real. If that's what's pouring out of your mouth. But he says, you know what? When you are not a complainer, when you are not a disputer, when you are not a grumbler, he says, you shine as a light. You stand out in the midst of a crooked, perverse world. Now, this is where I, I want you to grab this, and I'm going to try to say it in a way that makes sense. He says, when we do grumble and complain, we're crooked. You're crooked. You're not who God made you to be. You're twisted. Now, now do you know what the word really is in the Greek? You're perverted. Uh, a person who uses their mouth and pours from their heart, grumbling or complaining about anything, is perverting what you were made to do and be. It's not a sign of great character. It's not a sign of, I, I had someone complaining one time, said, well, I'm a realist. 
Really? That, that, that's an interesting phrase. You're a realist. And they actually looked at me and said, Chuck, you just aren't realistic. And I said, well, no, I think it's this thing called faith in God. Now, I'm a realist that God can handle anything. What about you? Yeah, and, and you know what? I got to tell you, let me say, I'm not pointing the finger. I'm going to get into this more next week. I'm a very, very natural pessimist. I don't know that complaining is my issue, but I can get negative quicker than anybody. And, and, and the bottom line is that is not a sign of faith. It is not a sign of an intimate relationship with God. It's not a sign of me knowing who God is when I'm like that. And we've got to grab a hold of this. That's why it says so clearly, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Because the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is negativity. You might struggle with some doubts. You might have some questions. But I, we know that our faith isn't real and true when we become negative and pessimistic and aren't believing in a God who can cause all things to work together for good or a Jesus who can always lead us in triumph, as it says in 2 Corinthians. That's God's great desire. Uh, 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 listen to what Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 45. He says, and by the way, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you would with me, 1 Corinthians 10. But listen to Luke 6, 45. For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks that which fills his heart. Out of the heart flows this. Uh, uh, so you know what? I, I've used this illustration before. It's the coffee cup illustration. Let's say I come walking out of the room and I've got my coffee cup with me and you run over to hug me and you hit me and, and what's going to fly out of the cup? Coffee. And when coffee gets all over us and I step back and go, what are you thinking? D didn't you see my coffee cup? I mean, look, I'm wearing a cashmere sweater. You ruined my sweater. What's in my heart? But if I step back and go, are you Okay. That coffee was hot. Are you, what's in my heart? Don't, don't miss it. Uh, and there's no reason to ever, ever think that it's okay to complain. Uh, um, while you're in 1 Corinthians 10, before we get there, Pam and I just celebrated our 31st wedding anniversary. 31 years together. And um, uh, it was last Friday. And I mean, I had planned this incredible night. I, 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 we were going to go to Ruth Chris Steakhouse because we had a card, you know, a gift card to go there. And then afterwards, I was going to take her to Disneyland because we have passes, you know. And we were going to walk around and have this romantic time. And, and I've told you, I'm married to the perfect woman. I think I, you guys, because she looks at me and she says, Chuck, you know, I know you want to go to Ruth Chris. And I know you want to go to Disneyland. But you know what? The, the, the March madness has begun. And, and why, don't we, why don't we sit at home and have in and out and... Okay, that didn't happen. <laughs> Not even close. Uh, you know. So anyway, uh, what happened though is, is we did have an amazing dinner at Ruth Chris. And then we went to Disneyland. And man, we're having the time of our life. But the crowd, I mean, it is so crowded. Spring break has begun. First night of spring. It's gorgeous. Man, you couldn't move. There were so many people. And then I said, hey, Pam, I want to grab some coffee before the fireworks start. And so she goes, okay, I don't really, I'm not thirsty. I'll just sit over here at a table. So I'm at the Tomorrowland Terrace. And if you've ever been there, there's like 14 lines to get food. And so I look and they're all pretty full, except down on the end, I'm like, oh, a score. And I run down there and there's only two people ahead of me. And, and I'm standing there and the line next to me has like eight people. And, and before one person is served in my line, the girl over here has cleared her line twice. 
I'm not kidding. I watch them all. And, and, and what it is is that there was a, a guy, college guy, you know, waiting on us in our line. And, and he got the order and he runs over and he's reaching for something. But other people are, they're running, grabbing ahead of him. And he's like, and I could tell he was freaked out. And, and, and he's new. And, and then like one of them wanted milk and he runs all the way to the other side to get milk. Not, but the milk is next to him. So he runs all the way. And, and he just can't seem to get the order. And, and the girl's real upset. He was there waiting. And, and she didn't order that much food. And like, I'm not kidding, 14 people just come flying by so I'm standing there watching and finally she leaves and the next person steps up to order and I guess he couldn't hear and and I'm watching and I think this is the funniest thing ever I'm standing here watching this the guy gets in line behind me and he goes should I be here and I said dude no way I said you see this line here I bet you money you go over there you'll get out of here before I do he goes really I said I'm not kidding she's fast and so he goes, okay, and he goes and gets in line, and he's in front of this woman, and she looks, she goes, yeah, I've watched. I mean, that guy, like, like and then she, she goes, what are you ordering to me? And she goes, I bet you're just ordering a drink. And I said, I'm not going to tell you. And uh, she goes, no, I bet that's all you want. I said, no. She, and then she gets all, he's waited on, he hasn't gotten this other girl done, and five people get waited on. So this lady walks up, and she goes, do you want to go ahead of me? And I said, no, I'm fine. This is funny. And they're going, really? Well, she goes, I'm going to wait and see what you order. So she gets her food and is holding her tray. <laughs> this is true. It's really happening. The other guy gets his food and is holding his tray, and they're standing to wait. <laughs> and I order one cup of decaf coffee. And it takes the guy like 10 minutes to get it. He runs over and he can't get in and other people are getting it. And he can't find a lid and he finally gets back to me. He goes, I am so sorry. I go, dude, it's okay. You kind of made my night. And, uh, and I turn around and they go, one drink. And they're going, oh. And you know, they can't clap because they have trace. And I go, yeah, one drink. And they're, going, they're all laughing. <laughs> and you know what? Why not laugh about it? Why not laugh about it? I mean, really. You know, it's not like anybody's being tortured and dying. You know, it's not like they work for AIG. No, but uh, <laughs> it's, you know, and, and, and in that moment, I know what the Lord is saying, Chuck, this is a time you don't grumble or complain. And when you don't, and by the way, I, I struggle with it too, but when you don't, when you don't, he says, you shine out as a light. I watch those two people walking away with their trays to separate tables. I know they've got a story to tell. You know, I get a sermon illustration out of it. It's worth the price of admission and uh, Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and look what it says starting in verse 6. Now, these things happened, and, and I think you might already know, but let me make sure we're on the same page. The exodus and the wanderings of the children of Israel, all that God did in the land of Egypt, how he brought them into, uh, across the Red Sea, how they failed at the border and had to wander for 40 years. And what should have been a 40-day journey ended up being a 40-year journey. Uh, all of this happened as an example to us. God said, I want you to learn from it. I want you to study it and learn from it. And, and it says this in verse 6, now all this happened as examples to us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now notice verse 10, nor grumble, idolater, adulterer, grumbler. Do you see they're all linked together in God's eyes? Except there's one difference. 
The, the, the people who get caught up in, in trying the Lord, he sends serpents. The people who grumble, what does he do to them? Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. In other words, God took the very destroying angel that came into the land of Egypt and wreaked havoc on them. God said, I'm not even sending snakes on you if you're a complainer. I'm going to use the ultimate form of death and capital punishment I can if you're a complainer. God really sees this as a big deal. He says in verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Please, please do this with me. Please turn to Numbers chapter 11, and let's look at this example we're supposed to learn from. Numbers 11. Now, now while you're turning there, I don't want you to miss what God is saying. God's looking at us saying, Chuck, know that I am against adultery. I'm against idolatry. And by the way, the idolatry he's talking about is child sacrifice. He said, I'm against complaining. I'm against it. God got so angry. As a matter of fact, many of us believe he may have killed more people for complaining than he did for the other things. It's really a big deal. Why? Because complaining ruins everything. A complainer can take anything great and destroy it. They take the life out of it. Uh, families. Families get so devastated by that complaining complaining family member. They make life miserable. Uh, you're going to see Moses feels that way. Look what happens in Numbers 11 verse 1. I love the opening of this verse. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity. Did you catch that? They step back and go, oh my gosh, they became like the people who complain. Why? Because that's so far from what it means to be a follower of God. The people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of them on the outskirt of the camp. It says God was so devastated by this. Why? Because it ruins everything. It destroys everything. Uh, great churches are taken down by complainers. Great organizations are taken down by complainers. Great sports teams are ruined by complainers. Uh, uh, great friendships are wrecked when someone turns to complaining. Families are, are made miserable. And people actually do this. And they go, it's Thanksgiving. How long do we have to be there with them? Uh, you know what? Is, let's just get honest. There might be some of you today that your name are on people's minds right now. And they're sitting there praying. You get this. And by the way, if you're praying they get it, you might be the one. Who, yeah, but, but you know, catch that we're not to complain about anything. You know, you show up over at Children's and we've changed it all around and, and check-in takes a while. What does a level four person do? You know what a level four person does? They stand there going, man, I remember when check-in was fast because there were hardly any kids here. I love that we have so many children in this church, right? Uh, you know what? We have a parking lot ministry out there. They got the white gloves and they're trying to direct you. Do you go, hey, what are they doing? Or do you go, I can't believe those people are so committed. They showed up here at 6 a.m., to help make our church a better church. I praise God for them. Right? You just don't complain. By the way, I was sharing with the men. Uh, let's take it away from just level four. What does a real man do? Let's just go to the guys. When a man walks up to the children's ministry and the check-in time is slow, do you know what a man does? Does he complain or does he walk over and go, how can I help? What would a man do? I'm serious about that. And we need to understand that, that this is serious to God. Now, I know some of you are going, Chuck, man, you're getting a little pointed here. 
Uh, a few years ago, I preached this very same, not very same message. We've redone it, but something similar. And a lady walked up to me afterwards and she goes, I just think you were preaching at me. And I said, you know, I was. I said, I don't want to be mean, but your name was on my mind when I did this. God says, oh my goodness, do not be like those who complain of adversity. Now, there might be adversity, but you don't complain. You trust in God, and, and we need to do it, and we need to grab a hold of that. Uh, look down at verse 15 and notice what it says. It says, uh, notice this is Moses. I think this is so interesting. Moses is talking about having to be around complainers. And he says this, talking to God, so if you're going to deal thus with me, if you're going to have me around people like this, if I have to be around people who complain and complain and complain, he goes, so if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. <laughs> Just kill me, God. And he goes, if I have found favor in your sight, do not let me see my wretchedness. Do you see what's happened? Moses has parted the Red Sea. Waters come from the rock. The glory of God is there, and it's all ruined because of complainers. He goes, my life's wretched because of them, Lord. Just kill me now. Kill me now. And you know what? That's what happens when people complain. You just walk around going, oh, I just don't even want to be a part of this. And, and, and it ruins everything. And God's great desire is we wouldn't do that. People who complain ruin everything. And here's the point, you ready? You rob your life of joy. Now, I'm not saying there aren't painful things. I'm not saying there aren't hurtful things. I'm not saying there aren't unfair things. But complaining isn't the reaction of a person whose heart's level four. And God's great desire is that we grab a hold of that. And when you complain, you miss out on what God's doing. I was sharing on a Sunday night a few weeks ago a true story that happened. Uh, a pastor who goes out and speaks all over and, and is known to a lot of us went to speak at a church for a full week. And a lady in the church happened to mention, was there any way I could have you for dinner? And he really missed a home-cooked meal. And he said, sure, I'd love to come over and be with you and your husband. But when she opened the door and met him and got him inside, the first thing she did is start complaining about the church. Just complain, complain, the church doesn't do this, doesn't do that. Oh, if we only had you as our pastor, you could change it all. Because our pastor, he preaches too long, he's too boring. And she's just complaining and not knowing, or maybe she did know, this pastor's best friends with the pastor she's attacking. Then she complains about the music. Then she complains about the volume. Then she complains. And then they sit down to dinner and she starts complaining about her husband. She said, Pastor, I wish you could win my husband to Christ because if he were a Christian, he'd finally be a decent husband. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't listen to me. Husband's just eating like nothing going on, you know. She's just going on and on and on. If only he were a Christian. Then she gets up to go get dessert. And the, the guy leans over to the pastor and says, hey, pastor, uh, don't tell her, but I am a Christian. I gave my life to the Lord five years ago. But if she ever found out, she'd make my life a living hell. Isn't that amazing that they're never going to have a Christian marriage? They're never going to center themselves relationship together on Christ. Why? Not because this man doesn't want it. As a matter of fact, later on I heard that this guy was just committed to unconditional love. But she's poisoning her marriage, poisoning the joy of it. That's what people do. To the point that Moses said, just kill me. And you know what else? People, don't miss this. People who complain lose perspective. They can't see with the truth of what's going on. Look what it says up in 11, chapter 11, verse 5. They're complaining. It says, actually go to verse 4. 
The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. Now I want to ask you a question. Was the fish free in Egypt? No, no, no. But they're saying, all we have is manna. By the way, manna would be cool. And no, all we got is a miraculous hand of God providing for us. I remember the old days when we ate for free. But how free was it? They were killing their children. Slaughtering their children. Is that fish free? They were enslaved and forced to work hard, torturous lives. They were being beaten time and again. That's not free fish. And, and you know why they can't see it? Complainers just can't see it. And, and I, I, you know what? It's hard to get people who are complainers to get the truth. And, and the sad thing is, is they lose the joy of God. They lose the wonder of when God does turn it to good because they can't see that. They lose the, the fellowship of people around them and the inspiration of it. it it's, just, it's a life of amazing loss. And, and you know what I want to tell you? Let, let's, let's just kind of bring this together. We live in a time right now where economy is tough. You can complain or you can find joy in it. Now, I know you might say, Chuck, you're being insensitive, man. We're struggling. I, I really am not trying to be insensitive. Uh, you know what? When your health isn't good, you can find joy in it. When, when, when you know what? When, when somebody has, has turned and hurt you, you can still find joy in it. You might say, how? Well, let me give you a quick insight, and then we'll pick it more up. You, you, you just focus on Jesus. You focus on, on the fact when, when someone's hurt you, you go, Jesus, I really get how you felt. Man, your prayer life could never be better. Your connection with God could never be deeper. Uh, a few weeks ago, I'm talking with a, a girl who had something hit her in her life, and I'm not going to say it, but it it was just a hand to God. She happened to be standing near me and she looked and said, hey, I got to tell you, I'm hurting because, and I said, I can tell you something. I know how you feel. And I said, I, here's the point. I really know how you feel. I, I had, here's what happened in our life. And she said, oh, it's, it's the same. And I said, I can't make it better. Do you know what I can do? I can cry with you through it. And you might say, well, you know, what happens in a moment like that? Well, we sit there weeping together. I mean, and by the way, that's real serious. And the Spirit of God just comes. And you know what? I, I can promise you, she wouldn't trade that moment. I wouldn't trade that moment. One of my dearest friends' health was just slammed like you just can't even imagine. And he called me up on um, Friday. And he's, he's the first, I always love this because he goes, Chuck, I've called you because I want to know how you're doing and I'm like, Jim, man, I've been praying. How are you? He goes, no, no, I want to hear about you first. Because that's who he is. And then I said, okay, here's, and I gave him what God's doing in our life. And I said, Jim, tell me about you. You know what he said? He said, I'm praising God that the healing's going slow. Because I am learning so much about me and about who he is. If he had healed me instantly, I would have missed out. This guy is so Christ-like and godly. And he's allowing God to cause good to come from a very tough situation. That's what, that's what a level four people do. You might say, well, that isn't easy. No, it's not easy. You've got to get on a cross. You've got to be crucified with Christ. You've got to identify with him. 
But when you do, you'll never be as close to him as you can be. And when that happens, you find victory and blessings, not only in the good times, but in the tough times. And you step back and go, this is incredible, Lord. C.S. Lewis in the book, The Last Battle, which is part of the Chronicles of Narnia series. It's the number seven book, the very end. In the book, he, he helps us meet some dwarfs. And the reason these dwarfs are important is they're going to go ahead and fight in the last battle that's going to be fought. But the problem with the dwarfs is they're amazingly negative. Anytime they're ready to eat, it's the worst food imaginable. Uh, whenever they're going to have to go to battle, they just don't have all the equipment they need. And when they do get the equipment they need, it's too heavy to carry. We're going to be worn out from the equipment now. And then when they go into the battle, they already know they're going to die. We might as well just go die, but we'll do it. But at least they're going to do it, I guess. And then it gets to the very last battle, and they get captured, which, of course, they knew they would. And then them and a prince, an amazingly godly, courageous prince, are brought up to be executed. And what they're going to be done to them, their capital punishment will be enacted by them being thrown together into the presence of a great dragon. The dragon is huge and hideous with great wings and fire pouring out. And it's frothing at the mouth to get at them and chomping. But when it does, it's not just a quick death. It's going to be an amazingly uh, torturous death as it bites and bites. And, and so they're waiting for the claws and the teeth. And there's, they, just, they, they knew this would be the worst possible way to die and it's going to happen. And so what happens is they grab the dwarfs who are tied together and get ready to swing them and they grab the prince so at the same time and they throw him in the air and as they fly in the air and they're just about to hit, pow, the rapture happens. And they're caught up into heaven. No dragon. They're in the wonders of heaven. A place of no more sorrow, no more crying. In the presence of God. And so what happens though is the dwarfs have shut their eyes and when they hit the ground, the head dwarf says, don't open your eyes. Don't do it because the dragon wants to make us afraid. Sit here with your eyes shut. Well, everyone runs over and goes, we're in heaven. They go, nope, you're lying to us. There's a dragon about to eat us. They go, no, no, no. He's not eating me. We're in heaven. You're the dragon keeper, they say with their eyes shut, as they sit there afraid and terrified that any moment it's all going to come down. And everyone's saying, it's heaven, it's heaven. And C.S. Lewis has them sitting there for the rest of eternity waiting for a dragon to pounce when all around them are the wonders and love of God and the amazement of what they could experience. Lewis was right. Lewis was right. You just can't connect with the amazing wonder of God when you're negative. That's why a level four person, a level four person does all things without grumbling or complaining. None whatsoever. I want to ask the question of questions. How's your heart? What's coming out of your mouth right now will tell you. Are you praising God? Are you believing in God? Are you trusting God? And if you're not, you know why you might not be? It may be, and this isn't meant to be a, a condemning. It just might be true. You and God aren't intimately connected. You're not even level three in reality. Because at level three, you connect with God in an amazing way. And you know what? He wants to have that connection with you. There isn't a person here. There isn't a man here. There isn't a woman here. There isn't a guy here or a girl here that God does not love with everything he has. There isn't any of you that God doesn't want to have you walk on what the Bible calls the high hills. Not in none of you that he doesn't want you to have a joy that is never taken away and a peace that passes understanding. God's great desire is for you to live a life like this that's above and beyond your circumstances. And so God looks at you and loves you and cares about you. And the Bible says he watches you and thinks about you. And he actually sings over you.
Every single person here today, God loves with all his heart. And the question is, are you connected with him? And if you're not, then how do you, how do you come into a relationship with God who, who causes you to have praise, has you to know victory and to be more than a conqueror, to have all things in your life be turned to good because you love him? And because you're called according to his purpose. How does that happen? Well, what you do is you pray. You say to God, I want this. Lord, I, I want to be forgiven of my sin. I want your heart, or my heart to be cleansed by your love. I want you to come and embrace me close. And, and what you do is you pray. And in a moment, I'm going to lead a prayer where you can actually, right where you're sitting, whisper a prayer to God and say, I want this. Now today, maybe you've never done that before. Today could be your first time. And as we pray, if you sense the Spirit of God touching you, I'm going to ask you just to, right where you're sitting, whisper a prayer with me to say yes to him. But it may be that at some point in your life, you did commit yourself to God. Maybe even recently, it could have been 10 years ago, 50 years ago. But you might say, you know what? I'm not close to Jesus today. I'm not experiencing him today. And I want you to know he wants you to. And what you need to do is recommit yourself by praying this prayer again. And so today, if, if, if you need to come back to him, I'm going to hope and pray God stirs on your heart and says, I love you. And I have a life for you to experience. I have battles for you to fight and victories to achieve. I have joy for you to embrace and love to, to, to inhabit you. And, and, and you just say, I want that, Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I praise you for your love. And I ask that this church, this church family, be known by you as a place of praise, as a place with voices of thanksgiving, a place where words of faith come out in the most trying of times, and yet we're believing in you and trusting you, and we're, we're willing to go through what it takes to have ourselves molded, because we just trust you, Lord. So I pray this church family is known because we're positive, we're optimistic, we're filled with belief in you who's more powerful than any situation. Father, I want to pray right now for anybody here who needs you. For the, the, the family, Lord, that life right now is so tough. It's hard to have that, that attitude that says they're going to make it. But Lord, I know you want to take them through and they still may have some waters to go through and some storms to, to, to weather. But Lord, if they would just embrace you, it's going to be the strength, the rock that takes them. And I pray for them today that they would want to open up to you. I pray, Lord, right now for those who are here that have just been hurt because they've been treated so unfairly. A lot of people in our day and time, people who are in this room, they've been betrayed by people they thought they could trust or companies or, or, or life, but they need, Lord, your, your touch, your love, your help. And, and I pray you would draw them to you and they would have a joy that's greater than the problem. They would have you. So I pray right now, Lord, your Holy Spirit would just begin to touch men who need to call out to you, women who need to call out to you and be loved by you, guys and girls who need to just put their hands in your hands and let you steady them. I'm going to ask that we keep praying. And if you're right with God, I want to ask you this. Would you pray with all your heart for those who need to make this decision? And praise God for you. Wow. And right over here, praise God for you. Well, all over the room, all over the room, all of you right now, God knows who you are individually. Let's just whisper this prayer together. Say these words. Say, Lord Jesus, I know you love me. And I know you died on the cross to forgive me of my sins, 
to heal me of my hurts, to make me new, to make me alive, and to make me yours. So I open my heart to you. Please fill me with your love and fill me with your spirit and help me be who you created me to be and help me live the life you have for me to live. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Wow, praise God for all of you who prayed that prayer. Wow. Man, praise the Lord. That is so exciting.